0: Welcome to All Up In Your Business, the creative industry podcast where we dive deep inside the work that seems oh so glamorous from the outside. I'm Gabby Hall.
1: And I'm Christine J. Fian, and I've worked as a media coordinator for the International Ski Federation on the World Cup Tour, and was also editor-in-chief at the same niche media agency where Gabby worked. So I've experienced leading creative teams in digital. Right now, I'm independently managing B2B and B2C marketing content needs in higher education, and also for an advisory group. So that's exposed me to the client side of the equation as
0: well. And I'm Gabby, I am an associate creative director for a creative digital performance marketing agency in Reno, Nevada. I oversee an incredible content team and work with some of the best designers, developers, and agency folks around. Before I entered agency life, I was a journalist and editor and spent some time doing social media and TV campaign production in higher education. And ultimately, Christine and I decided to launch this podcast to explore the broader questions and observations we had while working our way through the creative industry and up to the management level.
1: On today's episode, we're discussing if being passionate about your job is a blessing or a curse, or even both. Can you be too
0: passionate about your work? I am so excited to talk about this topic. I think there's such a prevalence of follow your passion career advice that we're all subjected to from a really, really young age. I mean, you think about kindergarten, they ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when you're a kid, it's sometimes like ballerina, firefighter, whatever it is, but we're so encouraged to to follow these passions. And it does make you wonder, do you pursue a passion throughout your life? Do you ultimately settle and make a sacrifice? And what does that look like? So I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I guess it's
1: not too often that people when they're young and they're asked to think about what they want to be when they grow up or excited to say, I want to be an accountant, right? There's certain professions or certain things that we assume carry some amount of passion with them. And even this term, follow your passion, has increased ninefold in English books since 1990. I mean, it's this idea, like we say, it's ingrained in our identity from a young age, but it also, I think, can shape your identity. If you pick something when you're super young, then you also maybe have to mold yourself around that. So do you settle for the job? Maybe that's just that your skills align with, or do you
0: try to pursue what you're most passionate about? Do you remember when you figured out what your like passion was as a, maybe even as a kid, and then how did your passion change? Like once you got to a place where you were thinking about careers? When I was a little kid, I used to take post-it
1: notes and I would scribble loops across them And then I would read them back to my family as if they were stories that I had written. So I'm pretty sure that from a very young age, I was passionate about writing and communication. So that's been the thread that has carried through pretty much every one of my career iterations. The basis and foundation has always gone back to writing. I've sort of coupled other passions alongside of that. So I try to write what I know or write what I'm interested in. and. I think putting two of those together, for me at least, has been super beneficial.
0: What about you? That's interesting. I think I've always been creative and I've always enjoyed doing creative things, but I was never going to be a painter or a drawer. Like, don't ask me to sketch something. I'm just not that good at it. I went through a phase in high school where I thought I wanted to do maybe interior design because I loved shows like trading spaces and stuff like that. And then I took a journalism class my senior year of high school. And I was like, no, this is what I want to pursue in college. And I think that's where it really clicked for me. So I always liked creativity and like that arena, but I wasn't really sure where my best skills would be used. And it took a while for me to acknowledge what that was. I am curious if you feel like since you loved writing from the beginning, did you ever feel stuck? Like you were like writing is my thing and I've always been passionate about it. Did you ever feel like you were kind of fixed or, kind of stuck on that pathway? I don't think I ever felt stuck
1: because I am just so focused on taking the next step and moving into bigger or newer directions. You know, there's a lot of research surrounding this idea and the concept of fixed theory mindsets versus growth mindsets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Paul O'Keefe, he's an assistant professor of psychology at Yale uh, along with a team of Carol Dweck. She's like the patron saint of growth mindsets. Um, mm-hmm. And Greg Walton from Stanford, they have specifically studied the effects that mindsets have on how people end up pursuing their interests and how that shapes their career and the choices that people make and, and how satisfied they are. And people that f- sort of follow this discovery your passion mantra, like, okay, I was writing when I was really young, typically have like these fixed theories that you're talking about, that things don't change. And your interests are inflexible and lasting. And if you have just one serious passion, this could lock you in to pursuing only that. And then maybe you're going to ignore other jobs that you might be well-suited for or or things that you could grow into, kind of like what you were saying. You had to have a growth mindset to lead
0: yourself to your passion. Yeah, I think that's like kind of a life philosophy too, right? You have to have, I think you have to have The ability to take leaps of faith, to understand that failure is okay, to understand that finding out what you don't want to do is okay. There's a really interesting article from 2015 called Finding a Fit or Developing It by Patricia Chen, Phoebe Ellsworth, and Norbert Schwartz. And they really point out that there's kind of two different ways to pursue passion. You either pick a job that fits you well from the outset and kind of prioritize enjoyment of the job before anything else. And then there's another lens where you believe that passion can be developed over time. And it's sort of this ongoing journey. And so you prioritize other goals over immediate enjoyment at work in order to kind of discover what job fits you over time. And I think that makes passion really complex, right? It's because there's different ways to view it, different ways to use it, different ways to hone it as you build a career. And I think what you were just describing,
1: too, in that research indicates that there aren't necessarily single individual careers where passion would be a driving force or where you would have to be passionate to do it, kind of like my accountant example. But we Mm -hmm. do see certain careers, very specific ones, where there is an assumption that if you're in it, you're in it because you're passionate about it. I was a teacher for a long time. And so especially in education, it's very rare that someone says, I don't like kids or I don't want to educate, but I'm a teacher, you know, you're supposed to be passionate about sharing knowledge with the future generations. Definitely social workers Mm -hmm. have to have, you know, or at least are expected to really love what they do. And then also people that work in the sports and nonprofits. And, you know, I think we could go through also a whole list within the creative industry. You know, what are you seeing there as far as the most passionate sort of roles for people?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting currently working in advertising, but also having worked obviously as a journalist previously, I think you see writers oftentimes not taken advantage of, but a little bit taken advantage of in the sense it's like, well, everyone can write and you're so lucky to be able to travel the world and cover this topic. And I think you see that with photographers as well. You know, people want donated services or they say like, oh, it'll be great exposure for you, whether you're a writer, photographer, graphic designer, but I see this meme a lot on the internet, like exposure doesn't pay the bills at the end of the day. So it makes it very tough to be a creative person because it, the value isn't always seen by people who don't work in the industry. And that can be very hard to explain to people. I'm curious, Christine, have you ever done work for free? Ooh, this is catching me a little off guard.
1: I have not done work for free. I think I was taught at a very young age that you need to value yourself and you need to have self-worth. I have donated services in mm-hmm. you know to places where I thought that they could be used. but I have worked for well below market rate to get sure. my foot in the door somewhere to develop a portfolio, to get you know in print. And you know, there was a time in my life where I didn't question that as much because I was building you know my brand or or my skill set. Now I think I would have a much bigger aversion to doing that unless it was really volunteer work that I was doing for a cause. But I definitely got really frustrated working in web publishing when it would come Mm -hmm. time to say, design a budget for your freelance workforce and you have management sort of saying, well, can't you just get anyone to write? Like, shouldn't it be free? And if you are asking somebody to create something of value for you, there is a value attached to that. And if you think that you can just get anyone to write, then you're going to get any kind of writing. Something that you need that's specific and that's going to be professional, you're going to have to pay for it. And if you find someone who's willing to do it just for credit, I
0: think you should question the level of the work that they're going to deliver for you. Absolutely. I mean, it's with all things, right? Like you get what you pay for. And I think the working for credit thing often comes up, especially when you're a young, Creative or young in any industry, and you're like an intern, right? And they're like, oh, well, you get to work at this company for credit. And I remember my junior, going into senior year of college, I did two internships. One paid me, which allowed me to do a second internship with a PR organization that did not pay me. So I had to work two jobs all summer in order to get the experience I was looking for. And that's a really tough place because as a motivated person, I really wanted to have that experience on my resume. But at the same time, I acknowledge I worked, you know, 50 plus hours a week to work two different jobs, one of which I wasn't getting paid for. So it's it's happening even from like your earliest days as a writer, or any type of creative and kind of well into your career. It's pretty interesting to see.
1: I think to build a portfolio, especially if you're trying to move into a new space, it, it becomes partly mm-hmm. necessary. But what I'm hearing in the setup that you described was a lot of intentionality, right? It's like, okay, sure. I'm going to get paid in one regard. So I give myself a little bit of flexibility in order mm-hmm. to do something that I know is going to benefit me in the future. And also the, the long-term benefit. Like I wouldn't say it's always a bad thing to do work for no pay, but I think what you really need to be careful of is if you're being taken advantage of, Right. If you're overly passionate about your work, or if you work in one of these fields where people assume you're passionate, then yes, you can think of it as a good thing, but it can actually set you up to be taken advantage of.
0: Absolutely. You know, there's that really interesting 2019 study out of Duke University that showed that people see it as actually more acceptable to make passionate employees do extra, unpaid, even more demeaning work than they do with other employees without the same passion for their work. So this can show up in a lot of different ways, whether it's asking people to work weekends, do things outside of their job description, work late hours, whatever it is. So in some ways, passion can actually give people kind of insights into, oh, they're excited about their job, I'm going to ask them to do even more, but you may not necessarily be making more money.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the Fuqua School of Business Study. And mm-hmm. to me, the scariest part of that, right? They had 2,400 total participants. They asked them a series of questions, like if they actually thought it was okay to ask these people to do that work. And it wasn't manipulative. It wasn't, oh, well, they'll just do it. So they're like the easiest person to talk to. They actually thought they were potentially doing them a favor in a way. Like it's, It was completely legitimate to them to say, oh yeah, there's a single employee that seems more passionate. Of course, that's who I'm going to turn to. Of course, that's who I'm going to ask because Mm -hmm. they would do it even if you weren't paying them and they weren't paying them. So I think that you really tread into a dangerous area when you're targeting just the same person that you think, oh, they're doing it because it's a labor of love. But would you ask that of someone that was doing a more traditional job that you don't think passion is an element in? Like, are you going to ask an auditor? To take on extra unpaid work. There's no way they would do it, but you could mm-hmm. <laughs> you could try. Um, are, <laughs> are you going to ask a welder, right? Is someone gonna come to your house to do yard work and you're gonna be like, oh, it seems like you really like what you're doing. So do all this extra work for me and I'm not gonna pay you. There's no chance somebody would do that for you. So why is it okay no. or why why are we getting away with it, you know, in the creative industry, especially?
0: Oh, yeah, I think it raised an interesting point because it's it's kind of a weird cycle, right? Because people who are exploited in their job are actually more likely to be seen passionate about their work, seen as passionate about their work. So you have someone who does work the extra hours once to help out. And then they're like, oh, well, they're really passionate. They'll do it again. And then it just becomes this endless cycle of giving more and more and more. And it's just perceived as passion, even if it's actually not passion, which I think is really interesting. And I feel like ultimately would lead to just extreme burnout. Yeah, I mean, if you're working more and more and then there's greater
1: expectations that are being put on you in your job, but you're not being compensated in any way for those efforts, like you're throwing money out the window. You are essentially paying a passion tax to have your job. And I don't think anyone, whether you care deeply about your work or not, should be treated that way. Ah,
0: there's the buzzword the passion tax <laughs> the beauty of this episode now I'm really excited to talk about this because I think people often feel like they're being exploited but there's not always a word or a phrase that we can rally around and identify and so part of this discussion is saying like hey you are not alone in this and we also want to talk about what it is and how we we fight against it is creative I think we all know like I mentioned earlier that this recurrence of paying the passion tax is a you you at an extreme risk for burnout. You know, you can be as passionate as you are about Christ- as Christine and I are about writing and still at the end of the day, burn out and say, I don't want to be a writer anymore. And no one wants that to happen. And so I think according to a study published in the journal of personality, this type of labor can breed like obsessive passion. You know, it's not like, Oh yay! I'm so excited to go write this piece on world's cup ski racing. It's, Oh bleep, I need to go write this article on ski racing. And that's a really brutal place to be. And have you ever felt like that, Christine, where it wasn't you were no longer excited about it. You were just like too deep and obsessive in it. I don't know if it was
1: obsessive in it, but definitely when I was working on the World Cup tour for the International Ski Federation, you know, we were producing press releases for 40 some odd competitions per season. And by the time you get to the last few weeks of the season, even though it's almost like you're on autopilot, Mm -hmm. maintaining any kind of enthusiasm in the work that you're doing, because you're trying to inspire journalists to pick up your news, right? You're creating press releases. You want there to be publicity. So you have to put a lot of energy into it. But you've gone through this exercise so many times in such a short period of time that it's hard to keep the stoke up. And you definitely do start to lose the enthusiasm. And and I do recall at the end of pretty much every season that I worked in that position, I was just so thankful to not have to write about just specifically a ski race for the next several months. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I think if you reach a point where you feel relieved that you don't have to take on a certain task because it feels quite rote, then that's maybe one of the first signs that you're treading into the, the land of
0: burnout. That's such a brutal place to be in as a creative where you, you definitely hit a wall, right? Cause, and then things get repetitive or it's very hard to step back and see perspective if you're just in that rote behavior of working, working, working. And that's kind of the importance of taking time off and stepping away and experiencing things outside of the screens that which we stare at <laughs> for far too
1: long every day. The Mayo Clinic, they have a list of burnout risks And two of the six are kind of related to that obsessive mindset that you were talking about. Hmm. One is that you identify so strongly with your work that you lack any balance between your work life and your personal life. And the other is if you work in a helping profession. Hmm. And I would say if you think of yourself as a helper at your job, right, that also
0: opens the door. Yeah, which a lot of people are just helpful by nature. I feel like It's such a hard habit to get out of to be a giver when you are just like that type of person and you would give everything to your friends, your family, your coworkers. And I think we all really struggle with setting boundaries and making sure that sometimes we are a little selfish and say, this is what I need to do my best work. And it's ultimately for the benefit of a lot of other people, but it's so critical. And I've gone through this on my own, even in the last few months where I've Been working from home more, and is how do you set boundaries between work and home when your office is in your dining room? (laughs) It's a really, really interesting challenge, I think, especially right now.
1: Also, particularly in news and I'd say web news, like where Mm -hmm. there's this cycle where you're expected to jump on a story the second it breaks. Gabby and I worked together on a lot of breaking news cycles, and it was at a time. It was at a time when I think we had a lot of energy and also maybe didn't know <laughs> as much about passion tax and burnout. But I definitely had the feeling that you know my role and my career depended on me being able to drop everything that I needed to at a moment's notice and go blast out a breaking news story. Mm-hmm. And you really can only handle that cycle for so long before you need some relief. And if you can't get that relief, then you're really heading into a place where there's a lot of stress. It's like, no matter how purposeful you are or, or how driven or how passionate you are, eventually the stress is going to build up and it's going to affect your well-being and your self-efficacy. Even if you're meaningfully connected to your work, there's so many reports, all kinds of data that basically says that the complications associated with this purpose-driven work on, on your health is basically just going to lead you to experiencing not just short-term burnout, but long-term burnout.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you raised a really good point talking about our time working together because we were so passionate and excited. And I think you and I also fed off each other a lot, right? We pushed each other and that's a really important relationship to have. But at the same time, we didn't maybe acknowledge all of the ways that we were experiencing burnout as a result of that. And there's quite a few symptoms to recognize for the people listening, as well as just resetting with ourselves to understand like, what does passion exploitation look like and how do you identify it? And one of the first things to look for is frequently being asked to take on additional unpaid assignments. Second of that, often being expected to perform work outside of standard work hours. That was a tough one for us because we didn't have work
1: hours. All hours were work hours. So I would say, be very, very, very concerned if there's no work hours at all. And yeah. you are constantly expected to be available.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of those important boundaries to set because you know, one of the challenges we had was that I was living at the time in Boston, but the ski races were oftentimes happening in Austria or Switzerland. So you'd be up at four in the morning to watch a ski race. And then you'd cover the race, and then there'd still be stuff to do all day from the administrative side is like the rest of the world wakes up. And it's very hard. It's kind of that boundary setting mission and making sure you have those hours. I am really grateful that the company I work for now, it's like eight thirty to five thirty. Those are our working hours. That's when clients can expect to hear from us, And it definitely helps. On the flip side, I love working in the morning. That's my best time. And so it can also be challenging to say, I do my best work at, you know from six to nine in the morning. But I still kind of have to be available the rest of the day. And how do you manage that? So the hours thing I think is really critical and something to take a hard look at for all of us, especially when you can like check your emails on your phone and everything, you know, you can literally be constantly dialed in. Stop doing it. Gabby, we've talked about this. (laughs) I don't check my email. I'm much, I'm much better about it now. She's she's
1: a work in in progress. (laughs) (laughs) But back to the list of, you know, these are the symptoms that we're looking In order to recognize, you know, if you Mm -hmm. might be paying a passion tax. The third one is when your job description no longer matches the work you're actually doing. If the list is much longer than what's on the piece of paper that's being used to justify your position and your payment, that's definitely a red flag. The fourth is if you feel you're losing that passion, if you start to question why you're doing the work. We mentioned that a little bit earlier on today's episode and kind of what that feels like. And Sort of going along with that, the fifth one is when you can no longer let the small annoyances roll off your back.
0: If you are just snapping at everyone, <laughs> yep, then it's time to take a step back and definitely reevaluate. And sometimes it's fashion tax, sometimes we all get in a bad mood, and that's fine. But you know, there's definitely times when you realize that you're just not willing to put up with people's BS anymore, and that's a time to reevaluate what you're doing and if you're in the right position. Do you want to tell us about number six, Christine? Sure.
1: That's when work loses its space for you to be creative. And it really starts to feel rote. The example I gave earlier of putting together press releases, but them all starting to feel like the same. Different day, same press release. Right. Um, Well, especially when the same people
0: are winning over and over again. (laughs) Flip that and reverse it. But yeah, if... Was that a Missy Elliott reference? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I can't do the... But no,
0: when
1: when the walls start closing in on your ability to be creative, that's going to happen when you're on deadline. I get it. When you're trying to meet client demands, sure. But when you're approaching a project and your first thought is, how can I get this done the quickest possible with the least amount of effort? And you're not even thinking of ways to hold yourself to the high standards that you were before. Then, you know, you need to start to question what is your relationship to work and what you're being asked to do. And the last one is when the work responsibilities or expectations have expanded to this point where you're no longer able to meet your personal needs. So if your workday has become all day, I mean, I hate to say this, but I can't tell you how many times I wasn't able to eat lunch. And if you have no chance to eat and you get hangry like I do, then... (laughs) you're not being able to meet your personal needs. And that is a concern.
0: And then the small annoyances get super, super annoying. So it's really just snowballs so quickly. Yeah, and I think too, you start giving up personal plans, right? Because you're like, oh, I got to work late to finish X, Y, and Z, or I need to go to bed super early because I need to be up super early to do something else and puts everything out of balance in a really difficult way. And I think with all of this, one thing I want to note is I think there's a level of expectation setting, right? There's some of it is, yes, you might be being exploited, you might be paying a passion tax. But it's also you need to open the conversation with the people around you. Do you work for an organization that's willing to say like, hey, we appreciate you. And we want to be able to allow you to set boundaries and opening the door to those conversations. I think there's a organization I really love called Bossed Up. And Emily Aries is the founder. And she talks a lot about negotiation and giving negotiation tips, whether it's, maybe you can't negotiate for more money, maybe you're in a field where it's just not going to pay more money, but you can negotiate for more time off, you can negotiate for different benefits and considering all the ways that you can negotiate to solve some of these problems if you really want to stay in that nonprofit in that field doing what you love, whatever it is. So it's not the end of the world if you're experiencing these symptoms, but you do have to be willing to have the conversations with the people around you. This
1: negotiation point, I think, is critical because we went through a list of seven sort of symptoms that you can use to recognize it, but that doesn't mean that this is inevitable. And there are things that both employers and managers can do and things that you can do if you are an employee experiencing this. So, Mm -hmm. you know, negotiating, we're talking a little bit from the employee side, I think circle back to that in a minute, but the employers and managers if someone is negotiating for more vacation time or if they haven't taken their vacation time mm-hmm. uh, it really behooves you to make sure that your staff is well rested that people are meeting their personal needs to continue to produce quality work for you and if you aren't able to keep an eye out on these passionate employees that really want to give it their all what you're risking is you know higher employee absences down the line and also higher rates of
0: turnover mm-hmm which is expensive. (laughs) Not good for businesses. And I think part of that is having an open line of communication, being the type of employer or manager who has an open door so that people feel like they can talk to you and express those things, especially where we're at in the era of COVID. This is kind of the era we're in now where more people are working from home, making sure that your lines of communication are open so you can have these discussions. Because you're not seeing people in the office. You can't see if they're working till nine o'clock at night. And so having those check-in points to make sure that everyone is feeling balanced, understanding that if extra work comes up, you can ask for volunteers, but you should also make sure the work is evenly distributed. Maybe it's a rotational system to make sure that no one person is carrying the burden of all of the extra work. And that's something that's, that really does fall on the manager who is kind of overseeing you know, larger teams and understands how the whole system works.
1: I was also thinking that given the challenges and the stresses that people are facing that is unique to COVID. In the work from home space, juggling schedules with kids' schools, even making the decision to send your child in person or virtual. I have a lot of friends that have been back and forth like a million times on this, not knowing what they should be doing. And the amount of stress that they're carrying from personal life issues right now has to 100% be carrying over into work. So it's falling on employers and managers to be proactive, I think, in creating even more flexible boundaries than have ever existed before. And not to just think, okay, you're working from home, so that's more flexible boundary than if you had to come into the office you know, to produce this work. But I think we all need to be like a little extra kind, a little extra sensitive, and proactive in making sure that people are taking care of themselves in this time. And if we do that, then... It's going to pay off in the future. Like you said, it's way too expensive to deal with employee turnover. And if you've got a
0: passionate employee, that's probably one of your best employees. And I think one of the key things here, if you are the passionate employee, always watch out for the signs in your organization that might indicate that you're in a place where you might get burnt out. Knowledge is kind of the first step. And so if you feel like you're being unfairly targeted for extra unpaid assignments, Repeatedly, if you feel like people are sending emails at two in the morning, or if you're ex- expected to respond to slacks at 10 o'clock at night, whatever that looks like, keep a watchful eye because I think as a culture, we've identified many of those things as normal. And while it may be normal, it's not the healthiest thing. And we all have the power to set our own boundaries, I think. That's
1: a great point to close out our first episode. And we'd like to thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if you liked the episode, consider giving us a review.
0: And honestly, if you hated the episode, keep it to yourself. <laughs> but uh, please share on social media with your friends and family if you think they might be interested in what we talked about today.
1: Until next time, keep it creative.